Have you ever heard the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the Bible? It's found in Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 1. And um, Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife, decided they were going to tell a little white lie to the church. And when you lie to the church, you lie to God. And what well, got them in some big trouble with the Lord. And some people feel that God was really unfair to them. But God has a good reason for everything he does. And we're going to talk about it in today's episode. That's what this episode is all about. Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long. They're too deep. They're too serious. They're too theological. And yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. Okay, so I wanted to start today. Uh, I wanted to read a little bit uh, here, um, a couple of short passages from David Palmer's book called Casket Empty, um, because he he gives us description. You know, he's such an intellectual, and um, he gives descriptions in here of the Sadducees and Pharisees. And uh, this is something that we continue to run into in the Book of Acts: the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So, and we, we had some general understanding of those two groups, uh, but I thought since you know we're going to be spending, we have spent some time in Acts, we'll spend a little bit more time in Acts, and and they keep popping up, uh, that it might help us to hear a little bit more in depth. It's not these are short passages, but he's very great in describing, and you know he's so smart about this kind of stuff. So I just wanted to thought we'd take a minute or two this morning to read what he has to say about those two groups. And uh, might help us keep in mind kind of some of the politics that were going on as the church began in Jerusalem and some of the pressures that people were feeling maybe being pulled or tugged in one direction or the other. Uh, And so the first group here that he talks about is the Sadducees. And he says, the Sadducees are a conservative, religious, and political group drawn from upper-class, priestly, and aristocratic families in Jewish society. The name Sadducee comes from Zadok, Zadok, the high priest in the days of David and Solomon. The Sadducees controlled temple worship, and many are members of the supreme legal council called the Sanhedrin, which we will encounter during the trial of Jesus. The Sadducees accept as binding law only laws derived from the written text of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Their major opponents are the Pharisees. They disagree with them by denying the bodily resurrection, the doctrine of reward and punishment, and the validity of the oral law. For the Sadducees, there is no problem in the world. 
there is a common view of those who hold power. This is a common view of those who hold power, wealth, and social status. Their solution is to maintain the status quo. There's nothing wrong in the world. There's no problems in the world. Just keep things the way they are. There's no reason to change anything. Uh, the influence of the Sadducees continues during the early days of the church, but it virtually disappears with the destruction of the temple in AD 70, leaving post-biblical Judaism to develop along the Pharisaic lines. So that's the Sadducees. The Pharisees, he says this, the Pharisees are an influential religious and political group during the time of Jesus. According to Josephus, Josephus was a historian of, the, of that day, uh, there were 6,000 Pharisees in Israel during the first century. They are a popular lay movement within Israel. The name Pharisee comes from the Hebrew verb parash, meaning to separate. The name was understood as those who separated themselves from all sources of ritual uncleanness. The Pharisees ate their common meals in the state of ritual purity normally required of the priesthood. Although often misperceived as extremely conservative, they perceived themselves as more liberal or lenient than the Sadducees in matters of ritual practice. The Pharisees believe that God is the creator who expresses his will to humanity in the text of scripture. They interpret the scriptures with the desire to maintain holiness and purity based on careful observance of the Torah. Their scriptural interpretation and way of life is transmitted by generations of teachers and will eventually be known variously as the oral law, the tradition of the elders, the works of the law, or simply the way of walking. The Pharisees understand faithfulness to the Torah as the prerequisite for Israel's visitation by God. Although some Pharisees come to believe, come to believe they frequently oppose Jesus in the Gospels. The Pharisees take offense at the authority Jesus claims when he teaches in his own name. They reject his interpretation and application, application of the scripture over issues such as the reverence for God, Sabbath observance, and ritual purity. For the Pharisees, the problem is Israel's disobedience to the Torah. Their solution is the study, teaching, and practical application of the Torah. The Messiah will come and set everything right again. The Pharisaical point of view is preserved and transmitted in the vast collections of rabbinic literature, including the Mishnah, Tesfeta, Talmuds, and biblical, biblical commentaries called Midrash. So those are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So you can see they did have a lot of points of confrontation in just their basic beliefs about Scripture. And uh, so they were kind of opposing each other, and yet they found a common opponent and foe in these Christians, these believers of Christ. So, uh, you know, um, your enemies until you have a common enemy, and then your enemy becomes your friend. And that's the kind of where they found themselves, is although they had kind of been fighting against each other for years and years and years, now that this new movement has come through Christ and Peter and John and the apostles, which we're seeing in Acts, now they find common ground to come against uh, these this new group that's uh, coming out. Yes, please. The leader of the new group, Jesus, said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And it reminded me of when we were reading that, they thought that the Torah was the way of walking. Yeah. And our leader, you know, um, 
on our first trip to Israel, said it was also known as God's truth, and it gave life. And so when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he was referring to the Torah as they knew it, and used those words because that would have been meaningful to them saying, I'm the Exactly, and when he sometimes says, "I'm the fulfillment," you know, like he said in this in the synagogue that day, in in this day, this has been fulfilled in your presence. Basically, claiming I am the Messiah, uh, he did it more than once, and and with different audiences, and so you can see how you know if you weren't uh, ready for that uh, because you're holding on to this tradition uh, because it helped you more, <laughs> then it was hard to open your heart to him, which says something about all of us as believers, you know, we need to be open to God's movement uh, among, in our lives, when, even when it's different than what we think it might be. Well, we are, I'm a big fan of the uh, series The Chosen, I don't know if you watched it or know about it's it. It's on television, yeah. It's phenomenal, but anyway... The uh, Pharisees there are constantly uh, going to their uppers and saying, you know, this is blasphemy. Jesus and the, the, the disciples are doing things on the Sabbath. You know, so they're very much shown in there that they're against what Jesus is about. Yeah, I know Jesus' argument against that is, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath yes. too, you know. Yeah. That, and that, you know, uh, uh, you know, we can't, you know, he refers to, you know, when David went into the, and took took the showbread for his yes, men. You yes. know that he actually endorsed that as an okay thing to do, even though it was against the law at the time. You know, were people like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea Sadducees? I think they were Pharisees. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I believe to me that that, that denomination <laughs> thought that uh, would be more um, acceptable. I mean, not quite as close-minded as the Pharisees. I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. I think the Pharisees might be more open-minded. Yes. And then he says in there, you know, some oh, of the Pharisees. The Pharisees yeah, yeah. No, I think the Sadducees would be so entrenched oh. in the Torah that they wouldn't open the oh. possibility. And even David said there, he said some of the Pharisees did become believers in the passage about the Pharisees. Yeah, he he didn't make the common one say. He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. Yeah, yeah. Because his teacher, Gamaliel, was a Pharisee, I believe. Because the Sadducees were the ones that were the higher, were the higher ranking, more prestigious. Right. Of the two, so I'm really surprised Paul would have been a Pharisee. Yeah. Well, even in The Chosen Again, they show Nicodemus that he, now I don't know, if you really, if they say this in a Bible grad, do they? What? That Nicodemus did start believing in Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Thought they did, but, but anyway, in the in the chosen, they show that Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, actually believed in Jesus. Yeah, and, and actually in chapter 5 of Acts, we're, we're going to be talking about today in verse 33, it says, when they heard this, they were furious, want to put them to death, and in verse 34, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law. Gamaliel was Paul's teacher, and he was a Pharisee, and so his students would have been Pharisees as well, means Paul would have been a Pharisee, so, yeah, by, by extension, so. So, interesting, though, isn't it, how these political parts, they're not just religious, no, these are also political. They have, you know, their own political things as well. So you can see how this, in this first century in Jerusalem, there's a lot of tension 
going on. Sometimes we read it, we don't get that. But uh, I think David does a really great job in his book. Uh, you really have to, to see the struggle and the tension that was going on, how difficult it would have been to be a believer in Christ because you not only have you know, the, the Roman issue, the Romans after all were the ones who crucified Christ, but you also have, if in your own Jewish religion, the Sadducees and Pharisees that are fighting against this as well. So this is where we are at this point. So let's look at... Isn't, isn't it interesting, though, yeah. that their, their struggle was how to be a good, God-fearing Jew. That's what they all wanted to do. Yes. You know, whereas so many times earlier in Israel, they just went completely off the rails. You True. Know, have cared less whether they were being good Jews or not. <laughs> And so they're fighting over how to be a Jew, <laughs> right. you know, as opposed to go worshiping Baal or something. What you else. find historically is that before the exile to Babylon, Israel struggled with idolatry. I mean, this was, and they were very bad at it, you know. They were always going off to follow some idol or some other god or some other influence. I mean, it never ceases to amaze me. When you think about them coming out of Egypt with all the things that God did and all they say, like the whole time they're leaving is we really want to go back to there. We really go back, you know, because we don't have the kind of food we like. We don't have the kind of whatever, whatever. Every time they run into a little bump in the road, they say, we really like to go back. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So anyway, but after they come back out of exile from Babylon and return to Jerusalem and Israel, that really doesn't isn't a problem anymore. I, that idolatry thing, they don't really run up, you don't see them as a nation or even individuals running after other gods. They're pretty much all now, once they come back and uh, rebuild Jerusalem from the exile to Babylon, it's really more about how do we, how does God want us to be, what kind of people, and how can we do that? So, Okay, so let's look at Acts chapter uh, 5. And you had a homework assignment uh, to read about Ananias and Sapphira which we're going to just briefly go through that because there's some things happening there that set the stage for what comes afterwards that we're going to look at a little bit more uh, intently um, and after, um, after Ananias and Sapphira. So look at chapter 5 um, of Acts. And to really get the context of what's going on here, you actually have to move back a few verses in chapter 4. So if you go to uh, Acts 4, verse 34, it says, There were no needy persons among them, that be, means among the believers in Christ. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas. Did you know Barnabas, uh, really had, his name was really Joseph? That's interesting, isn't it? Because he's always referred to as Barnabas from here on out. So Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas. And the reason they called Barnabas was like a nickname, because it, it, it means son of encouragement. I mean, can you imagine being such an encourager that they start calling you Son of Encouragement, that's your nickname. It's like, uh, Jan and I were watching this show yesterday, on, I don't know what it even was now, or something, and uh, there was a guy's name who they called him Pinky. And that, you know, Pinky obviously was his name, that was his nickname. How does a guy get the nickname for Pinky? But then Jan said she had a relative who all his life, they called him Stinky. 
So I hate to think what you would have to go through to be called stinky your whole life, but uh, I mean, there were times when my kids were babies, I would have called them stinky, but uh, uh, but yeah, so, but here, Joseph is such an encourager that they start calling him son of encouragement, Barnabas. That's, that's cool. I mean, that's like the thing you want to have happen, right? So verse 37, he sold a field uh, he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So this was not required. This was voluntary. Uh, This wasn't like, you have to give us all your money or you can't come to church here or you can't be a part of our group. That wasn't it. It was, oh, you're a part of this group and because you had your life change, your heart change, your spirit change, you wanted to be generous And when you saw people in your group who had need, you didn't want them to go hungry or needy. And so out of your heart of giving and love for Christ and through Christ for others, you would just voluntarily give your money to the church or to the believers to use to distribute. And uh, if you had an extra plot of land and you weren't using it, you might sell it and bring it and give that to them. And that's what Barnabas did. He said... You know, he must have been somewhat wealthy uh, because, you know, if you're going to sell a field and you need the money, you're not giving it all to the church. So he apparently didn't need the money, didn't need the land. He wanted to be an encourager. He wanted to help people. So he sold the land. He brought all of it and gave it all to the church. And I don't know, somehow this became common knowledge. I don't know. He doesn't strike me as the kind of person who... Went off and bragged about it. Ha ha! I gave, I all that money. I gave all of it. You know, uh, I was reading a, a pastor uh, who was a, a big a pastor of a big church in L.A. at one time, and he said we had a big uh, uh, thing we wanted to start in downtown L.A. and just like maybe our magnify campaign that we're having here. And he says so. They had a lot of. Uh, Christian business people, and they went to them and said, we'd like you guys to help contribute to get this thing to happen. Uh, and uh, so one of the men who was really, really wealthy, he gave just a little bit. And they came to him privately and said, you know, why didn't you give more to this program? It's such a good thing. And uh, he said, well, you know, you said in the meeting that this is going to be anonymous, that no one was going to know who gave the money. And if I can't at least have my name and get recognition or can't raise my hand that I gave, if, I can't, if it can't be public knowledge how much I gave, I'm just not going to give that much. I mean, it, seriously, is that unbelievable? So, um, but Barnabas, I don't think it was like that. But somehow word got out uh, that he magnanimously gave this, and it must have been a pretty significant amount of money because uh, Luke wrote it down. So it was so impressive that Luke says, when I'm writing what happened, I'm going to write about Barnabas selling this field and giving all of his money to the, laid it at their feet and said, you use it in the way that uh, you see fit to use it, in the way that it needs to be used. So this was pretty astonishing and people knew about it. And I'm sure that Barnabas got a lot of pats on the back they were talking about him. They were lifting him up. This great guy. Look what he is. Isn't he amazing? Okay. So 
Now we go to chapter 5. Now, the first word in your Bible on chapter 5, what's the first word on chapter 5? Now, stand. You have but, but. Well, but, Greg, okay. The better translation is but. Uh, Mine has now too, but that's not. The actual, when you look at the original language, it's really better translated as but. So the idea here is that this is a, Luke is continuing the story about, so if you just start at chapter five, you don't get the frame of reference. What Luke is saying there is, so some people were doing this and Barnabas did this, but the story's continuing. But, and when but happens, you know, well, something the opposite is probably going to happen here, right? But a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, <clears throat> also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, in other words, they planned this, it was premeditated, they got together and said, let's do this. And she's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going I'm to fault him for coming up with the plan. It was his idea, but she, when he said it to her, she was like, okay, I'm in. Yeah, so she was in. Uh, so, because you know, I mean, men, come on. If your wife says, no, that's a bad idea. I don't think we should do it. You don't do it, do you? I mean, you pull back, right? You say, no, no. My wife says, no, this is, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, but then but, there was Adam and Eve. And that's true. Well, if you don't, if, if you, and men, if you don't go ahead and do it anyway, you rob your wives of the opportunity to say, I told you so. I told you so. I was going to happen. So, no, never, never. Let's just say, Women, you can be a good influence on your men. Men, please listen to him. Uh, so with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. But he brought the rest of, of it and put it at the apostles' feet. So he's doing the, notice that, the, it, the people brought to the apostles' feet. Barnabas brought to the apostles' feet. Those people gave everything they had. They didn't hold anything back. It's all. And they knew it was all. But these guys said, we're going to keep some of it back. And they may have given a lot, you know, they may have been saying, look, we're still giving a lot of money. We're just keeping back a little bit. What we're giving is still a lot. So we should still get, you know, the same kind of pat on the back and recognition that Barnabas got because, you know, we're still bringing, maybe even brought more than Barnabas. We don't know. It's not really the point. But the point is it doesn't matter how much they were bringing. The point is, what they said they were doing was not what they actually did do. So it says, um, then Peter said, Ananias, uh, how is it that, and this is so important, Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money your, at your disposal? So in other words, what Peter is saying is, you didn't have to give it all. This isn't required. You could have held some back. That's not a problem. It was your decision to do whatever you want to do with your money. You could have given none of it. But if you're going to come and say, we've given it all, then you have to give it all. You can't say, I'm giving it all and not give it all. So you can't take credit for being... You know, doing something you're not doing for being something you're not you're not actually being, uh, and try to get glory for something that you're lying about. 
And it's interesting here where he says, Satan has so filled your heart. Now, I believe Ananias and Sapphira were Christians. I believe they were believers. I mean, you know, when Peter, when Peter said to Jesus, you know, surely you're not going to die when Jesus was saying he was going to die and was telling him about what was going to happen to him, you know, uh, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, right? Peter was a believer. Peter was a follower. Peter was a good apostle. But Satan got hold of his heart for that moment. And, and, and like here, I think Ananias and Sapphira, they were good Christian people. But Satan got hold of them. You know, uh, Adam and Eve, you're talking about Adam and Eve. You know, they were they walked with God and they loved God, but Satan got hold of them. And what Satan does is, you know, he, he plants the seed in your heart. You know, like with Adam and Eve, he said, well, surely, you know, you will not die. Surely God didn't mean that. And when you look at... Um, Peter, you know, Satan was saying, surely Jesus won't die. Surely not. And here I think, you know, with Ananias and Sapphira, he was saying, well, surely it's okay to get, keep a little bit. Because surely it's okay because of how much you're giving. And I think that's what's happening a lot in the world today. I think, you know, Satan is getting a hold of people in society, in our culture, and he's saying, He's not, now he's not, I don't think, when he said to Adam and Eve, surely God did not say. Today, I think what the lie he's saying to people who are unbelievers is, surely God did not mean. Surely did not, God did not mean that you can only be saved through Christ. Surely God did not mean that you can't be a good person and get to heaven. Surely God did not mean, you know, you name whatever it is that's counter to the Bible, the, the, the argument is, well, surely God did not mean. And they, go, they do all kinds of flip-flops and calisthenics to change the word of God to meet what they want it to say. Because surely God did not mean that. You know? And it's compromise. And, and I think in this, you know, filled with Satan in their heart, they were Christians, but he said, surely it's okay. And so what did they do? They concocted this premeditated... Uh, plan to deceive and to lie. And so what's the result of that? Let's look here. Uh, it says, um, what made you think of doing such a thing? And in the original language, it's like, what, how did you set your heart to this? Uh, you have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what uh, had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias paid for the price you got for the land? Now, Peter is giving her a chance to fess up here. And I'm sure if she had said, you know what? No, we, we lied. We were honest. That she would have been spared. Peter is giving her a chance to redeem herself and to find forgiveness if she just says, admits the truth. The problem is once you get into a lie, right, <laughs> you go deeper and deeper, and it's harder and harder to get out of that lie as you go deeper into it. So she's already deep into this lie, and she doesn't think she can get out of it. She doesn't want to admit it. She goes, yes, she said, that is the price. 
Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look at the feet of the, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Uh, then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great. And this is what applies to what we're going to be studying next and is important for the, the development of the church after this is great fear sees the whole church and all who heard about these events. By the way, that's the first time in scripture that the word church is used uh, there in uh, chapter 5 of Acts in that verse. And the word that's used there in the Greek means that uh, it means to um, be called to, to be called apart, to be called, to be se- kind of be separated, but to be, to be set apart, to be called apart as a group. And so that's what the church, the church were the called ones is basically what that means. Um, but here's what's happening now. There's great fear. I mean, how would you have felt if you're, you know, considering what the apostles are teaching and preaching and saying about Christ, and you're thinking maybe you would become a Christian and believe, but then Ananias and Sapphira walk in, and they just told a little white lie and they were struck dead by God, is that going to be a group you're going to be anxious to go out and run and join? <laughs> I, I have a question. How did Peter know it wasn't the right Christ for the land? I know. I guess the Holy Spirit just revealed that to him. That's all I could tell you. <laughs> Greg, how do you distinguish what's going on here from the doctrine of forgiveness? Well, I think we have to take it in the context in which it happened. And I think um, I think there are a couple of things going on here. I think one of the things is that at this point, God was protecting the fellowship of the believers because they were just getting started. They were just beginning to establish the church. And I think if there had been an allowance for Ananias and Sapphira to even though being forgiven, uh, I don't, I don't know that their their characters would have been the kind that would have been able to stay on the straight and narrow. You know, they revealed themselves as kind of open to Satan already. They lied. They did this premeditated. They they chose to do it. They decided to do it. It was it was something that wasn't just spur of the moment. And I think maybe God was protecting the early church from having the influence that they might have had if they had been allowed to continue on. Even forgiven, they might have still been a really detrimental influence on what the church was doing. And he, he couldn't, at that point, it was so critical and pivotal that the church be filled with committed, devoted, obedient uh, people to get up and running that that influence couldn't uh, be allowed to exist in the church. I think that might have been part of it. I think also part of it might have been a warning to the other believers that, you know, everything, every sin's important to, to, to God and, and, you know, you have to, every, everything can be serious. You know, this is serious stuff here. Uh, you can't just do it and get away, get away with it. Uh, that this is kind of a warning as well. So I think it's a protective thing maybe. It's a warning perhaps. Um you know, it is difficult for us to sit here and say, gosh, that seems awful harsh, you know, for that to have happened. Because, you know, 
like I said, what people were probably thinking back then is, my goodness, no one's perfect. And if I go in and I just do this one little little sin, if I if the first time I make a mistake or I sin, is God going to zap me dead, you know? So I think there was some, from a human standpoint, some reason to be hesitant at this point because you're not sure, like, is this, is this something that's going to happen often? <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. But but I think that you know, it God in the Old Testament continually warned people from opening themselves up to paganism, opening themselves up to things that were not uh, according to what He wanted, and and yet they did it. And when He did it, He punished it, punished them. And yet they, oh, you know, when he punched them, they said, oh, we won't do it again. Please forgive us. He did. And then they did it again, you know, over and over and over again. And I think here in this early development of the church for the belief and following Christ, he couldn't let that happen. It had to be a, a, a movement that moved forward with momentum, with the people who were really had the right heart. Do you think this is a, a distinguishing movement? Grieving of the Holy Spirit uh, from other kind of sin. Absolutely. Is this, I mean, there's always a question about what is the unforgivable sin. Right. Um, this it's a little bit different than your run-of-the-mill law, I guess. Well, there's a lot of speculation about what is the sin that can't be forgiven. There's a lot of speculation about that. But I think most commentators come down to that is lying to the Holy Spirit is that's probably the, what they were talking about. And uh, this is exactly what they were doing here. They were coming into the church, a Holy Spirit-filled church, Holy Spirit-filled people, and they lied about what they... The problem wasn't that they kept the money back. The problem is that they lied about it. And it reminds me when my when my, my son especially. My son is a liar. I'm sorry, okay? I mean, all kids are liars, you know? But he was like an exceptional liar. So, so, you know, all of a sudden we'd see, because, uh, you know, also boys, actually, we have two girls and a son. And, you know, I don't care what you say. I mean, uh, girls are just different right out of the shoot. You know, my girls never took a straw in a restaurant and pretended like it was a sword. You know, my girls never went and ran and just kind of threw themselselves on the ground. I don't know what that was all about. He would just go and just run and jump and fall on the ground. Anyway, so for an example, one time we had a, a vase was broken in the house. We didn't hear it. We didn't see it. We didn't, but all of a sudden we run across, oh, there's a v- broken vase. And there was no one else who could possibly have done it but him. And it's like, Jordan, did you do that? No. Jordan, you must have done that. No. John, so he and I often had conversations about, Jordan, it's not good what you did, but you know, you're in more trouble for lying about it than you are about doing it. So I think the same kind of thing is here. It's not good that they did it, but it was worse that they lied about it. And that's why I try to tell my children, like, I might be angry at you for a moment because you did something, but I am, this would, this would, always, this would always destroy my kids, which I, I, thank goodness I found out about it. I would say, but lying about it disappoints me. And when you say to your kids, you disappointed dad or mom, that, that hurts them, you know, that, that got their attention. But it was, but it, you know, the point was, hey, you did it, that's bad, but lying about it is worse. 
made it makes it worse. Ruth, do you want to say something? Well, I was, but it's okay. Yeah, there are some cultures that don't teach that line is bad, especially when it comes to their religion. So, and they think that if you just tell these lies for a long time, that um, that someday it'll be true. I do believe people tell themselves a lie, and often enough, they actually do end up believing the lies. And I do believe that that, that can happen in human nature, you know. I did ask my husband a question. He said, "Ask Greg." <laughs> <laughs> so, I, but you kind of explained it. But and and I don't like to speculate. But yet, I was just wondering: you got took their earthly life from them, but did he take their eternal life? No, no, they were still Christians. They were still believers. They were believers. They just made a mistake, you know. They they sinned, and God, I'm sure, you know, forgave that. Uh, you know, uh, they were still saved in Christ, you know. And even the sin they committed, the moment before they died, was blotted out. Okay, that doesn't mean they weren't disciplined. Obviously, they were disciplined because of the lie, but they were saved. They were believers. They still went to heaven. You know that that still was the case. I feel so. I may die with sin that I have asked forgiveness for, but I'm still going to be. It's already forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Not when, when your sins are forgiven. It, when you come to the cross of Christ, your sins are forgiven. It doesn't mean just the sins you already committed. It means the sins you're going to commit are also forgiven. All right? You still want to ask forgiveness. You know, it's like when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. You know, and Peter said, "Well, wash me all over." And Jesus said, "You don't need to be washed all over. You just need to have your feet washed." And what he basically was saying there was. You don't need to be washed your, your whole body, because you're, you're still saved. Your whole body doesn't need to be washed. You're saved. But your feet need to be washed because you have daily dirt. You have daily sin. So I'm just washing your feet. I'm just washing the sin from today, you know, and then tomorrow. So what we, I mean, my prayer is every day, God forgive me for the sins I committed today or yesterday or whenever it was. And, and because I don't need to be forgiven again for salvation, that's already been forgiven. My my the sin I was born with is already forgiven. It's the daily sin of my actions that I need forgiven for from that point on. So this this isn't unlike. Tell me if I'm off track here. It seems like it's not really off track from Paul's teaching, like to the Corinthians, for example, where you can't allow sin in the church to go unaccounted for. Because it corrupts the church. Exactly. And that's what was happening here. You know, they were they were if they had been allowed to go forward, people probably knew about it. They don't tell us. But you know, it's like you know, if, if the Corinthians, the guy was sleeping with somebody who was sleeping. You know, there's all this church, all the sin that's allowed to fester in the church corrupts the church, and that's right. what that's what Peter's trying to protect. That's why God was why he did what he did here was to protect the church from being corrupted by allowing this sin to come in to become just normal. You know? And if you don't confront it, you're you're implying an endorsement of it. Exactly. You, know, you either confront it and stop it, or if you don't, you imply that, okay, I'm okay with it. Um, we're going to find out when we get to Gamaliel and his argument to the Sanhedrin as to why Peter and the apostles should not be killed, uh, I believe is because uh, he might have had some hesitancy about that maybe what they're saying is true. And I don't think he 
he didn't want the Sanhedrin to vote to kill them and the blood would be on his hands by association. He's in the Sanhedrin. He has influence. If he just lets them vote and vote to do that and he doesn't stand up against it, then he is guilty as they are because he had a chance to speak up and, and take the opposite view, which he did. But uh, I think part of that is because he wanted them to um, be let go without being killed. And I don't know, I'm reading into it. Nothing in Scripture would ever say it, but I have a feeling the reason he stood up for him is because he maybe even had some doubts himself, possibly. And he wanted to play out without the blood, their blood on his hands in case they were really... God's people, which they were, but, you know. So, yeah, I mean, you have to stand up against it or stand for it, whatever way it is, but you, if you're part of the group that it, you, that's making a decision or a judgment, uh, you you have responsibility. So, Dennis, did you have your hand up? There seems to be an evolution of um, responsibility. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, uh, the... Israeli, Israelites are taking the ark away from the Philistines uh, back to uh, Shiloh, I guess it was. And uh, Olaken doing a good deed in order not for the, to allow the ark to fall, reached out his hand and touched the ark to steady it, and he died. Exactly. Because God said, don't touch the ark. Uh, at what point then do we say, now God has spoken. It's our responsibility to remember what God spoke, uh, and, and, or not. That, that's my question. So the evolution here is um, God has spoken. Uh, that's the word. And it seems then God says, now church, you get the idea. I demand honesty and purity. And in the same way, otherwise, at what point does God say, okay, it used to be a bad thing, but now it's not. Yeah. So. Good point. Um, and I, it's, it, that's a good discussion to have. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of an object lesson to the rest of the church. Is, you know, you have to guard against Satan. You have to guard against, you have the, you're going to have influences from the world, but you can't let that become part of your Christian life. You have to stand against that. But that's, I've always struggled with that because um, he didn't have time to guard against it. They're, they're taking this holy instrument and it's about to fall on the ground. It's like saying, hey, we can sit there when I was in kindergarten the first time I ever had a impression about the flag where somebody was running by and knocked the flag over and one of my friends dove and got the flag before it hit the ground. And I thought, What's that all about? Made an impression, yeah. We made an impression, but so here's this holy thing, the most holy thing, artifact that they have, and he's walking along, and all of a sudden it starts to fall, and he, I, I, I don't know how he, what, 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 were the, what were his options at that point, right? <laughs> well, part of the issue there was they were transporting the ark in the wrong way. They were being disobedient just in the fact that the, the way they chose to move the ark. Because they were moving it on a wagon, on a cart. Right. And God had said, 
No, when you move the uh, ark, you use these poles that go through, they had ringlets on the ark, and you put them through, and they were supposed to carry. So if you're carrying it, it's not going to fall off anything. you got it securely. So part of that, part, I think even the, major, the, the main reason that happened was because, again, God said, you're being disobedient. This is not what I told you to do. And he can't by implication, endorsed, hey, it's okay to move the cart, that, the, the ark that way, because it wasn't. He, he judged them because they did, now they might have done it unknowingly, it might have, they might have just been ignorant, but you know that kind of falls on them. It's like, okay, if I'm going to move the ark, maybe I should study the instructions first. <laughs> but I think the bigger problem there was that they were being disobedient in the way they moved the ark. And God said, I can't let you move my ark in a way that's not the way I told you to do it. And so I think that um, that was probably similar to here is that they were being disobedient and they were doing something in the wrong way and God being a holy God, having given them specific instructions on how to do it, couldn't let that go by without judging it. So, yeah. The other side of the coin is the Babylonians come, take the ark, handle the ark, open the ark, right, store the ark, Destroy the ark. Who knows? And God says, "Don't worry about it." They weren't His people. Yeah. They weren't His people. The Spirit of God left the ark by that point. Uh, Probably described it as Ezekiel showed saw the chariot leave. So he he sanitized. He was no longer there. Yeah, exactly. You know, honestly, when you become a Christian, you should feel you now have a higher calling. You now have a higher bar to reach in the way you live your life. I mean, you really need to have, you really should, once you become a believer, you should really feel, hmm, I was living that way. I can't live that way anymore. And so you're right, you know, every, the Bible, you know, you handle that a lot more carefully. You, you study it. That means a lot more to you. Coming to church, hearing sermons, and, and living your life in obedience. So once you become a Christian, uh, you do you are held to a higher uh, a higher mark, I think, in your life. Uh, you are burdened by what you know. Good way, Lance. That's perfect. Excellent. So let's end on that, though. You're burdened by what you know. So you know it, so you're burdened by it, but the good news is you're forgiven, too. Uh, but that doesn't mean God won't discipline you if you're disobedient. Forgiveness is a good thing. But it's like, you know, when, when, when Jordan broke that thing, you know, I forgave him for doing it. I still loved him, but I think I might have, you know, taken away his whatever, his sword for the day or something, you know. <laughs> so, so there still can be discipline for it, nevertheless. So that's a good place to end. We're going to start where I, uh, we're going to go into more depth because here's what happens. Listen, let me just give you the, you know, they do previews. So this is the preview. Look what happened here. It says, uh, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No, no one, but look at verse 13. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Why do you think that was? They were so scared to death by what happened from Sapphire and Ananias. So, so that was a hurdle that the church had to overcome. You know, how do we overcome the hesitancy of these people and explain what happened? So, anyway, we'll get into that. Nevertheless, yeah, and that's good. Verse 14, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So I want to talk about that a little bit next week. How do we have this 
paradox of people being afraid to join, but joining, but not joining. How do you join, but not join? So, because that's what they did. They joined, but they didn't join. So, you know what? Still happens in the church today, by the way. So, okay, that's all I got. So, praise the Lord. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today, and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you, peace be with you. Shalom.